Hey, yeah, no peoples. We're in season four, and we want to thank you for joining us on this wonderful journey. If you haven't yet, please consider subscribing to us. We love that you listen, but subscribing will help us more than you'll ever know. Also, regardless of which method you use to listen to your podcasts, please, 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 please leave us a review. We love to hear from you and we want to know what's working, what's not. You can also drop us a line at our website, yeahnopodcast.com. But if all that's too much, we get it. The smallest contribution is subscribing. Thanks again for listening and we intend on delivering a kick-ass fourth season for you. Hi, this is Mia. And this is Tina. And you're listening to Yano, yeah, a podcast at the intersection. What? Hi, this is Mia. And this is Tina. And you're listening to Yano, yeah, the podcast about having a business at the intersection of design and healthcare. I am so tired and it's my anniversary and I'm just going to fall asleep at dinner. <laughs> oh, geez. I honestly just want to go home and See, go See, this sleep. is what marriage is all about. I know. That's the best part is you can just fall asleep on each other. Yeah. I know. I don't want on each other. I want to just fall asleep on myself. (laughs) (laughs) No, I went to bed really early last night. I was up super late because of this podcast because I got lost in researching trilogies. Oh, Lord. (laughs) All right. Because today... We are doing the end of the trilogy. The third one's always not good. Well, this is the thing. Except okay. for Return of the Jedi, which I loved. Everybody I else did love it. that too, but I, you know, in my research, my <laughs> copious amounts of research, I discovered The Empire Strikes Back is the most popular one. Well, yeah. You didn't know that? I didn't know that. No, no, no. Because I love Return of the Jedi too. Oh, I don't like Return of the Jedi best, but I like it. You know what's not a good third part of a trilogy is Back to the Future 3. That yeah. was terrible. Yeah. But, but what's a good one is Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Toy Story 3. Oh, God, that was so bad. It was so good. With the cowboy and the cowgirl? That no, one? No, no, that was number two. That oh, one was, it's that was the one terrible. with the bear, the evil bear. <laughs> oh. You know, everyone comes back. Anyway, Godfather 2 was the best one. Godfather 3 was not good. I know I'm going to get royally panned for this, but I've not seen any of the Godfathers ever. What? I know. I'm sorry. Okay. Best trilogy of all time, Lord of the Rings. Third That is a very... uh, Was the best. ...controversial statement that you just made, but third one, what was the third one? Uh, Return of the King. Yeah. Was that good? It was so good. I think we were just relieved it was over. Oh, jeez. All right. <laughs> Let's talk about our trilogy, the Yeah No trilogy on healthcare. First of our trilogy was episode 12. Designing for healthcare. We brought a designer on, Katie McCurdy. She's great. And then the second one, episode 28 with Lolita Abiancar. Dr. Lolita Abiancar. And um, that one... We wanted to bring in a doctor's perspective about designing for healthcare. Yeah, talking about design curious doctors or doctors who really support design in yeah. their practices. And that one also really, really well. People love that episode. And we decided to close it out with today's episode. We thought since we talked to a designer, we talked to a doctor, we would talk to a patient and really discuss this topic of co designing with patients. 
uh, which means bringing them into the process. Yeah, because patients are the experts, right? They have all the workarounds. They are, you know, living the experience every day of both managing, you know, whatever health issues they have, but just managing life. Also, you know, they can help us understand, you know, how do we sustain engagement over time when, when thinking about designing things. So, you know, having patients be central to the design process is really important. And sadly, I think it's still pretty novel. Right. It's much more accepted, like this idea of patient experience or putting the patient at the center. There's a lot of talk about it, but I just don't think that people know how. And our experience has been that people are a little nervous about it still. So there's a lot to unpack with this idea of designing with patients. And so we wanted to welcome our guest, Jen Hornjeff, who is the founder and CEO of Savvy Co-op and a very, very dear friend of ours and someone we greatly admire. What we love about our guest today is that she's a patient advocate in the world of rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, She's had juvenile rheumatoid arthritis and has kind of been speaking about it ever since. And she has a PhD, so, you know, she's done a lot of school. And um, she's also taught at Columbia and uh, now is working full-time at Savvy. She's super smart. So let's talk to Jen. Hello, Jen. Hey, Jen. Hello. How are you doing? Hey, guys. I'm doing well. Thank you. Good morning to you guys, too. We're excited to have you on. Mia and I are here in the studio, and we'd love to get a quick introduction of yourself first. Ah, my pleasure. So I'm Jen Horanjeff, the founder and CEO of Savvy Cooperative, and I got into healthcare because I am somebody who considers himself a patient. I've grown up with several different types of chronic illness, and that's what really drove me to want to be a part of this world and help solve problems for other patients as well. So I became a human factors engineer and human-centered designer and also a patient-centered outcomes researcher, so studying things that matter to patients. And that's what helped me kind of understand the need for creating Savvy Cooperative. Cool. Tell us a little bit about Savvy. Savvy is actually the first and only patient-owned public benefit co-op, and that's a mouthful. But what it means that we are collectively owned by patients. And what we do as a service is we help companies or researchers or innovators connect directly with patients or family members so they can actually talk to the real people that they're building products and services for. So they can do, you know, user experience design, they can do market research, they can really tap into this knowledge base that we kind of have been ignoring for so long. We love what you're doing at Savvy. It's such a amazing idea. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about where the where the idea came from and you know why why you created it in the way that you did and why it's a co-op. Savvy was really born out of personal experience. So as a patient, I was really involved with patient communities and you know very active and knowing what the patients want and hearing about the conversations happening on that end of the equation. And then when I went into healthcare as a professional, I was hearing all these people that were truly trying to innovate for patients. They were trying to, you know, build better products or services or create innovative research for them. And they were never talking to patients. And again, these are those passionate people. They were trying to do the right thing. 
but they just were missing this important piece of information. And that is what the patient experience actually is. And they just were guessing. I would ultimately then sort of pop up of being like, well, you know, as a patient, that doesn't necessarily sit well with me. So then they started asking me over and over and over again to sort of be that sole patient representative. And, And one of my illnesses is juvenile arthritis. And so it's a type of arthritis But there are 54 million Americans with arthritis in the United States. And I kept being asked to be the voice of all people with arthritis. And it was a real diversity issue, as you can imagine. Somebody who's white with a PhD living in New York City cannot possibly speak for all those individuals. So I started playing matchmaker. Honestly, I would just post this to my networks on Facebook or otherwise. When I would get asked to, you know, speak on behalf of patients, I would just post it and say, hey, anybody else want to weigh in? And I was just flooded by other patients who wanted to share their experience. They just never had a way to do it. And so that's where Savvy was born out of. The co-op layer is one that is, of course, a little bit unusual, but also, again, from personal experience as a patient who's constantly been asked to give my insights and usually for free while somebody else is going and profiting. I didn't want to do that to other patients. So we said, how could we create a more equitable model? So as a co-op, they can buy a share of the co-op. They are legally a co-owner. They have a vote in what we do, and they share in our profits. So a co-op is a for-profit company that gives its profits back to its membership. And so that's how we're doing it. We're trying to practice what we preach, that we want patients to have a voice, and we want them to be fairly valued. So we do the same. That's That's amazing. That's so cool. What do you think is the best way to work with patients? What could companies do? to better design with patients? Well, I think, you know, where we stand from how you should work with patients, it should be early and often. But what we see in practice is that because this is sort of a newer concept for people to actually be working with patients, I think people get nervous. They don't know how to jump in. They don't know where to start. And of course, then there's challenges around convincing their management or whoever it might be on how they should do this. So, you know, the the individuals that we're working with to try to help them understand how to work with patients, we just say, just start somewhere. The whole point is to keep doing it and to iterate. So it doesn't have to be perfect the first time. It's just, you know, taking that first step and then, you know, seeing value from it. But I I think you you should always be holding the back of your mind of how are you going to do so equitably? Some of the things that we hear is that you know, we're too far along in our development process to really change much. And the other thing is that a lot of times people might not admit to it, but there's a fear of actually talking to, you know, a group of patients or or people because they might tell them something they don't want to hear. And so what do you tell those kinds of companies? Oh, there's a lot to unpack there. (laughs) I mean, let's start with, yeah, they're going to hear something they don't want to hear that is going to disprove what they were, you know, hoping to innovate for. It's, they're already on this trajectory. There's really no stopping. But my gosh, wouldn't you want to know that before you get to market? Yeah. And, you know, one of the examples that we use, and not to throw anybody under the bus, but it was so highly publicized, was Pfizer's development of Exubera, which is an inhaled insulin product. Mm-hmm. And they went through all the trials. They got FDA approval. It hit the market. It was going to be world changing. No more needles. Patients simply inhale their insulin. It would help with needle phobias. They were absolutely convinced that this was going to be the answer. 
you can already feel that I'm building up to something <laughs> because naturally what happened was they brought it onto the market. They had not done enough testing with patients or physicians. And I don't know if you guys have seen it or your listeners have seen it, but it's it's this contraption that's kind of like this it, uh, telescoping like tennis ball case or container it was big and nobody wanted to carry it around right and right. so nobody was using it yeah and they pulled it from the market and that was 2.8 billion dollars sunk in that product wow and so you bet your bottom dollar they would have wished they had talked to patients to make sure that this is the right thing. Yeah, it's a, such a good point because, you know, a lot of products and services, people forget that they're being used over time, that they're being used in the context of someone's daily life. And so instead of going out and, you know, seeing and talking to patients, a lot of times companies will rely on surveys and things like that. But it really doesn't get to the heart of what are people's life needs and what's the context in which this will live so that people will use it and continue to use it. Absolutely. And that's why, you know, the work that you and other designers do, especially around ethnographic research, is just so invaluable to tell that larger story of how things fit into somebody's life. I'm just curious from your perspective, like, what's a good question? What are the things that they need to be asking in order to get to those types of needs? Well, I think we need to understand that a patient does not want to be a patient. They have a whole life outside of their clinical diagnosis. And so how might we start asking them more questions about what else is going on in their life? What's important to them? What are their goals? And that can help to elucidate sort of this larger environment that they live in that then can then come back and say, how does this needle or this you know, inhaler or whatever the treatment might be fit within that? And then you can start asking more direct questions of, you know, is, would you prefer to use a needle versus an inhaler? But you need to understand the human first. Yeah, right. I think that the thing that we constantly are running into, right, is that there is a level of risk that the researcher and the company take on by asking a lot of things around someone's life. And that's where we always at Diagram have to convince the team to say, we will find something. It's We don't know what we don't know. And the challenge that we always are working on is how to then take that information and translate it into something that they can actually use. Absolutely. And I think, you know, it's important to think about this, you know, across the life cycle of developing a product. So that is, you know, from R&D before you even start building a product or service throughout that process of you know creating this thing and bringing it to life and then also the commercialization and the marketing aspect i mean that's where we see some things fail and to be completely honest i did not respect marketing as much as i do now but to me i feel like it's also a disservice to patients if you don't even do effective marketing if you've really done it it right and created a great product and then the marketing is not something that is is resonating with them because you don't understand the population you're trying to market to. And then that means that these people are not getting the stuff that they need. So I just want to acknowledge that this is necessary from inception of the idea all the way to making sure it gets into the right people's hands. Right. What's what's in it for the patients to participate? We firmly believe there should be a value exchange. I think that a a lot of people think that patients should do this just based on altruism, and that can be really tricky because not everybody has the, the time or finances to be able to 
donate their time for free. So we advocate that patients are fairly compensated for their time and insights that they're providing. I'll say that with the caveat that we understand that different companies or innovators have different budgets. You know, we work with a lot of startups, but then we also work with pharma. So obviously there's a span of uh, budget restrictions that one might have, but I think it goes back to just doing it equitably. And so if you're a small startup that doesn't have the same budget as a larger company, then what's equitable is to make sure that you're acknowledging that the patients are, you know, fairly or either providing insights and value and that you're doing the best you can to, to compensate them with the means that you have. That's great. And then just kind of our last question for you, Jen, and it's actually a question that's just come up, and I wonder if it might come up a bit more in the near future, because I do think that this idea of co-design and co-creation is really coming more to the forefront. Uh, One of the challenges that we were just presented with recently was a group's legal team coming back to us and saying, oh, you can't call it co-creation or co-design because we're afraid, well, you know, of course they didn't say in this many words, but that we're afraid that they'll come back and say that they have a part ownership in that product. Of the idea. And that idea. Mm. And I was just wondering, what are your thoughts about IP and in this kind of world in which we hope to see moving forward be a lot more common of, you know, if people have really good insights or they, you know, are providing some ideas or co-designing, you know, what do we do about ownership? How do we how do we manage that better? Ownership really involves two main tenets of governance and economics. And that's how we think about it as a co-op too, right? If we think about people have a vote, so there's governance and share in the economics, they are able to share in the profits. But even if we think about that on like an individual project basis, what I want people to start thinking about is when you get patient insights through a co-design workshop, even through if you're doing a survey and you're just asking the patients at a cross-section in time, is ultimately you're getting data from them and then you're going to use that data. And right now we typically think, okay, if I'm going to do this workshop with patients, a co-design workshop, it's because I'm trying to help inform X product that we're trying to bring to market. And that you can, you can get your head around that. And so you can tell the patient when they're signing up for this, thank you so much for, you know, agreeing to participate. You're going to help us understand what it's like for people with breast cancer because we're trying to develop a new support service. And then the patient can get their head around it. They understand that they might be compensated a stipend for their time at that workshop. But then we have to start thinking beyond that. And that what if that data is used again that they've shared and for what purpose? How does somebody consent for their data to be used for something that was never intended to be used for? And who's then profiting off of that second or third or fourth or fifth iteration of using that data? And that's where it starts to get a little bit stickier. And we don't necessarily have great answers because we don't have great methods to track where that data goes at this point. And people are working on this. You know, I know in working with you all, you've asked in the past, like, look, we want to use an interview that we had from one patient at, you know, last year. We want to use it again. And that you then come back to us and you ask us for permission to, you know, contact that patient to do so. And I think that's the wonderful way to be doing it at this point while we don't have other systems in place. Because you guys have thought about, oh, gosh, maybe we should ask permission. 
I think that would be my biggest takeaway for people is to think about who is making the decision about using patient's data again, and then also for what purpose, and is that something that the patient would be comfortable with? Yeah, that's great. Do you have any last tips about working with patients with co-design? Oh, please just do it. Just do it. Just do it. Just do it. They are experts in their lived experiences. And it's just a necessary piece of expertise that we must have to be able to really fully understand the needs that we're designing for in healthcare. I think just because they don't have an advanced degree in being a patient, they don't have a certificate, but they have decades of experience that you can't learn in a book. And it just has to be leveraged in a way that is fairly valuing them for what they've gone through. And I'm going to add a second piece because I think it's something we also forget how important it is to a patient to be able to share their story and that you're providing them something so valuable also of just giving them an outlet to share something that it seems like a negative in their life, but can be used more meaningfully and for good by asking them to share what it was like when they got that diagnosis. It's sort of unlocking something for them and I think we need to have more of that. And it really just helps to breed more trust in this healthcare ecosystem that sometimes just feels so divided. So the more we can come together and collaborate, the more we can all understand we're all hopefully driving towards the same goal. Great. Fantastic. We're so inspired by you. And thank you for for creating this company. Thank you for being out there in the world, speaking about it and doing all of the activities. You do so much to promote this idea of patients as people and putting their voice out there. So thank you. Well, thank you guys for doing such amazing work and really innovating in this space of how we can more thoughtfully work with patients in ways that we're getting really insightful pieces of information from them in less conventional ways. Well, thank you so much thank you. for joining yeah, us. Yeah, my pleasure, guys. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. That was a great conversation with Jen. She's so inspiring. I, You know, she does so much stuff. She has a YouTube channel for Savvy Yeah, where she does interviews, and so we were on that. Yeah, ours um, was the best one. Yeah, it was the best one. <laughs> Funny how Everyone. that is, right? Uh, yeah, she does. She And she travels all around for conferences. She does a conference circuit. She rides her bike from Astoria to Manhattan, yeah, basically. Yeah, takes conference calls all the on time. her bike. Yeah, she's a superwoman. Yeah, she is. You know, I think that her experience, her learned experience of being a patient and then starting Savvy is just, it seems like such a natural progression, but, you know, she's worked really hard. And I think that we knew her when Savvy was still just a twinkle in her eye. And, and now, now um, look at her, <laughs> look at her now, but she's, uh, but you know, what Savvy's doing is fantastic. And we've had such great experiences with their patient population. That's right. They're amazing patients. Yeah. Incredibly engaged incredibly useful motivated. and helpful and yeah motivated articulate to, to want to tell their stories and be able yeah. to share their experiences and and be able to really help make a difference right in wrap up we've just always believed how important it is to have patient perspectives i think one of the issues traditionally has been the focus has been on clinicians or other healthcare stakeholders kind of as the users of products and then patients have just kind of come along and have had to accept healthcare the way it is. And, you know, by giving patients a voice and giving patients a a place to provide input early in the process really is a game changer. 
game-changing. Stay tuned for the next episode of Yeah, I Know. We're going to talk about the undiagnosable. Yeah, really cryptic. That's right. <laughs> I kept it that way. <laughs> if you like what you hear, please consider subscribing. We like subscribers. You can find us on the internet and on Instagram. Yeah, no, Y-A-H-N-O podcast. This is season four. Tell a friend. Let's get some more listeners. We really want to spread the word about Yeah, No. This episode was recorded at Figure Eight Studios with Michael P. Coleman. Our Yeah, No theme song is written and performed by Chess Smith. And this episode was produced and edited by Tori Flack. A goodbye. Bye-bye.